Hey friends, this is Sarah. And this is Ashley. And today I'm bringing you a story of Maureen Brubaker Farley on our first episode of Hometown Homicide. We finally have our first episode. Yay! And I am going to tell you about Maureen Brubaker Farley. Now, this is going to be a case that had been cold for 50 years until, like, 2021. It is now a solved case. But let's get into it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready for some true crime? Perfect. (laughs) I really thought you were going to say, are you ready to rumble? That is not the vibe we've got. (laughs) (laughs) No, not today. Maureen Brubaker was born July 4th, 1954, to the parents of David and Marianne Brubaker of Sioux City, Iowa. She was described as being a firecracker also, since, you know, she was born on the 4th of July. Oh, fun. Um, by her mother um, in an interview back in 2010 for Who TV Channel 13. Um, also described as she was just super special and always wanted to grow up really fast. So she was the oldest of seven siblings and she would often babysit for her parents and then um, the children would be rewarded 10 cents for minding Maureen. Okay. So, like, if they did what she said, she would give them 10 cents each. Back then, now, was, Yeah, I was going to say 10 cents. That was something back then. Went a long way. Yeah. And then what they would do is they would go down to the dime store and buy candy cigarettes. And I laughed at this because I remember back in the day, growing up, we would camp. And every place we camped always had, like, a candy store. And we always get candy cigarettes. Really? Yeah. But we'd, like, burn the end of them to make it... It was... We were stupid. But anyways. And then even, like, if there was, like, a a little tip that they would get into, uh, Maureen, she would just always praise her younger siblings and tell her parents that they minded her so they would get their 10 cents. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. And then, um, in night... Didn't really find anything else, like, besides that of her growing up. Um, just what I found about Maureen. But when she was 17, um, so in 1971, she married David Farley. Um, she, she was 17? She was 17. Ugh, okay. In 1971, it kind of, you get married young, I think. I mean, yeah, they did that too. Um, but she ended up moving to Cedar Rapids because David was serving a little stint in the Anamosa State Penitentiary. <laughs> I know. I've been there. I mean, not as a... <laughs> it is a men's reformatory, but... She's, yeah, not been there. I have toured the place. To I'm reside. from She's, there. Yes. Um, it is very interesting inside. Um, but anyway, so she moved to Cedar Rapids um, to be close to him while he did his little stint. Um, what was he there for? It did not say Rude. what he was, and I didn't look up really much about him because he's really not part of this this whole yeah, just case. Obviously, he wasn't a suspect because he was locked up. Hmm, true. Um, so, yeah. Didn't really look into much about her husband. 
Um, so she rented a room in Cedar Rapids, and then she waitressed at, I think it's Wida's, Wida's restaurant. Um, so I did look it up. It is, because I've never heard of it, it's Riley's now on First Avenue. Oh, I was going to so say, it's like I imagine that something else by now. So. area, like where Riley's is. is what, and stuff. Yes. Okay. Um, and then while she was living in Cedar Rapids, she missed her family terribly. She would send them pictures, and then she would call any chance that she had, even though, I guess back then, calling was really expensive. Oh, long distance, I suppose. Mm, yeah. Kids, you take things for granted nowadays. We all do. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, we do. We, we really do. Ugh. So, on the early morning of Friday, September 17th, she borrowed money uh, to buy a pack of cigarettes because she had not been paid yet, um, and she was going to pick up her paycheck later that day. But she never made it to pick up her paycheck that day. And then, from what it sounds like, Maureen was pretty reliable. So, with her job. So, when she didn't show up for work Monday. So, Friday was really the last time she was seen from borrowing that money, buying a pack of cigarettes. Didn't show up Monday, the 20th. That's when she was reported missing from her employer. Um, and then they went and searched the room where she rented. Um, they didn't really call it an apartment, just, they called it a sleeping room. So I don't know if that was a thing back then. Um, when they searched that room, they did find the pack of cigarettes and her car was parked out back and it had a full tank of gas. Interesting. And then four days later, um, on Friday, September 25th, um, around between 5 and 5.30 p.m., Kevin Copas, 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 who was 15, and Danny Line Weavern, I could have typed that wrong as well, um, who was 14, they were headed up Ely Road, uh, with, which is southwest Cedar Rapids, um, to go hunting. And they noticed a junk car in the ravine, uh, which they did not see previously because there's a lot of trees and um, you know, foliage. Fo- yep, that's the word. Um, but so they didn't see it previously. Um, they then saw what looked like a sleeping lady on the trunk of the car. On the trunk of the car? Yep. So the, it was an old junk car parked, and they see this, what looked like a sleeping lady. Uh, her leg was propped up, and her body was laying against the back of the window on her back. Okay. Um, uh, she wasn't wearing any shoes, but she was fully clothed. Clothed. Fully clothed. <laughs> uh, since they thought she was just sleeping and didn't want to wake her, they just went on their way to go hunt. So once they reached Highway 30, which is too close to hunt, they just decided to turn around and go back. So once they made, like, on their way back down Ely Road, they approached the car again, and she was still there in the same position. So this time, Danny and Kevin decided to investigate this time. They wanted to get a little bit closer, take a closer look. And that's when they discovered that the sleeping lady was not sleeping. So they saw the discoloration of her body. So this freaked them out. (laughs) I mean, at 14, like finding something like that, you know, they freaked out. Um, And they started running down the road. And then they almost stopped at a tavern 
uh, to get help, but since they did have guns because they were going out hunting, they just didn't want to get in trouble. They went down and headed back to Danny's house. So they told Danny's mom what they saw, but she did not believe them. That sucks. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I know. Well, so she goes, I don't believe you, so take me there. I want to see what you saw. Um, And then around 6.40 that evening, uh, they arrived back at the junk car, and Danny's mom also saw what looked like the woman sleeping atop the car in the ravine. Um, They then went to a nearby farmhouse and called the police. And then once the police arrived and secured the scene, they removed Maureen's body and took her to a local hospital for an autopsy. Investigators first thought uh, Maureen was thrown from a passing vehicle and passed through the heavy vegetation and onto the car's trunk. And just landed like she was And then landed like she did. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so they thought she was thrown. Mm -hmm. Um... But didn't rule out rule out that she could have been placed there. Uh, and then a few days later, on the 27th of, of September, the Cedar Rapids police issued a public plea for anyone with information to come forward with what they knew. And then according to the Cedar Rapids Gazette, um, it was an article from September 29th, 1971, Cedar Rapids Police Chief Kenneth Venus, Venus, Uh, said they believe Maureen's death took place other than where she was found, and they were incredibly interested in Maureen's actions from the last day she was seen alive. They also thought she may have left town, um, because they said if she would have been in town, she would have picked up her paycheck. But obviously, like, she didn't pick up her paycheck because she was most likely dead. But obviously, if she was going to leave town, why wouldn't Aya pick up her her paycheck paycheck before? But also take your own car that has a full tank of gas? Yeah, what? Or the cigarettes that you needed to buy, borrow money from someone to even buy? I mean, logically. Yeah, so the, reading that, I was just like, ex- they just thought she was out of town because she didn't pick up her paycheck. That, that didn't make sense. Um, so back to Maureen, there were no indication of defense wounds. Uh, that came from the assistant chief, and her clothes were somewhat disarray, but were not torn. She had blunt trauma to the side of her head, which indicated a surprise attack. Um, It also came from her autopsy. Um, We'll get to that here in a second. So in that same article from the Gazette, um, there were several missing items from Maureen's room um, that she was renting. And per their investigation, she never went anywhere without her purse, which was one of the items missing. Okay. Her purse had her fake ID. <laughs> I mean, it, it to show that she was 21 because right. she was 17. Right. I mean, yes, she was married, but she wasn't 21 yet. She right. probably needed that ID to buy her cigarettes. Um, and then also had her social security card, rent receipts, makeup, um, some family pictures, and a picture of a Marine in uniform. I don't know. Who the Marine was, but she had a picture of a Marine in uniform. Um, also in her purse was a leather wallet with red velvet lining that her husband David made while he was in Animosa State Penitentiary. Arts and crafts time in prison. Okay. Yep. Um, normally. I'll say it sounds fancy. Leather and red velvet. I'm like, oh, yeah. and made in prison. Made in prison. Uh-huh. Um, also in Animosa, they make license plates for us here in Iowa. Do they still do that? Though? Yes. Well, I mean, last time I took a tour, yes, they did. Hmm. Hmm. Yep. 
Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then when they found Maureen, uh, Maureen, her shoes were missing. And that is like, they really talked about her shoes were missing. Because she was fully clothed, but her shoes were missing. Mm-hmm. But her feet were clean, which means she was mm-hmm. not barefoot when she died. Right. The assistant chief made it very, very clear that if any of her missing items were found, they were to report it to the police. Okay. So Maureen's autopsy was completed and showed no signs of alcohol, alcohol in her blood, which left officials wondering what happened that morning. Clearly. I mean, she's dead, so should be thinking about that before. The Lane County Medical Examiner ruled Maureen had been dead no less than 48 hours and no more than 96 hours, and cause of death was a massive blow to the right side of her head, causing a basal skull fracture. It was also confirmed... The right side of her head? Yes. Okay. And she'd also been sexually assaulted. But fully clothed. But fully clothed. Disarray. I mean, yeah, he couldn't have shimmied it back on or whatnot, but... Okay. So, her case, like, that is what I found from articles all basically saying the same thing about her death. Now, her case had remained unsolved and left, like, no answers for her family for 50 years. Now, they had tried to do... Because um, back then, there was no DNA. Yeah. Like, none. That wasn't a um, They had tried in 2013, I believe, some DNA testing, which there were a lot of suspects. But um, finally, this year in 2021, through investigation DNA technology, the Cedar Rapids Police Department Cold Case Unit identified and confirmed George M. Smith as a suspect in Maureen's death 50 years later. So the case is closed with no prosecution because unfortunately George did die in 2013 at the age of 94. Holy jeez. So he got to live a full life. Okay, wait. He died in what? 2013. 13. I'm stupid. 13. And it (laughs) happened... So he would have been like, what, 50-something when he did this? I mean, I, I mean, not that I'm not doing that. I just, I was just like, well, crap, if this happened how long ago? And I mean, obviously he was old. I mean, he got to live a full life. Yeah. Which is. Now, George was interviewed back in. Really? 1971. Hmm. And officer reports show that he had gone to the police department multiple times in the month after Maureen's death. Murder. To ask about the progress and in the investigation, how it was going, um, um, but there was not like there wasn't even enough evidence to charge him or any suspect back then. Hmm. Of all the suspects they had, they did not have enough to charge anybody. Hmm. That's why it was left cold. Now it says that George worked at a liquor store next to where Maureen rented her room, and. Multiple people identified him as an acquaintance of Maureen's from the diner that she worked at. Mm. So she probably wouldn't have felt too threatened since she'd seen him before. So apparently he had gone in there multiple times, worked, knew where she lived. Right. Because her car was still home at home. Mm-hmm. Um, even Maureen's mother suspected George 
uh, was responsible and even wrote to the police months after her daughter's death. Hmm. So DNA technology, like we said, wasn't a thing at the time of her killing to confirm that he was in fact the killer. Um, even now, her family um, have answers and they're relieved to have, you know, a little bit of closure. They're angry that her killer died before getting the justice that he deserved. Um, That's what they told Fox News anyways. Um, But, so yeah, exciting. I mean, that technology was able to bring justice, not justice, but closure closure. to a 50-year-old cold case. Mm -hmm. But, But, yeah, that's that's my story hmm. of Maureen Brubaker Farley. Um, she's beautiful. I mean, she was beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which we can attach the... Or on our Instagram, I should say. Put her picture up and you know, a few others. But her siblings, like, missed her so much. Apparently when she moved to Cedar Rapids. And even now they're like, we wish, like... How would she be today? Um, she also, there's a Facebook page um, remembering Maureen Brubaker. And they post on there a lot, like mm-hmm. wishing her happy birthday. Like you would have been, you know, 67 this year. And it's just oh. kind of, you know, what would she be like today? And George Smith took that away from her. Um, Not that we'd really need to know anything more about him because. Right. I don't care about him. <laughs> right. I just found it intriguing when you said she was hit on the right side of the head. Although if he came up behind her and was just since more normal people are, are typical people are right-handed. Well, if he was behind her. Yeah, he could smack her on the right side from behind. And yeah, she, I guess I don't know how liquor stores were then, but liquor stores now you can get liquor and cigarettes. So if maybe that's where she had went over there to buy them and maybe he followed her home home or waited for her to come out or something since the cigarettes were inside the apartment or room and we'll never know since you know he obviously took that to his grave of what happened that day on september 17th 1971 Mm. he literally took that to the grave he never had like married or kids or anything that i i didn't look i just read what the cold put, case. The cold them. case. I gotcha. didn't read about him. I don't care about him. He well, took right. someone's life. Um. <laughs> I, just, I just didn't know if there was maybe some sort of, like, he mentioned it to I'm his sh- wife at some point or whatnot, or if he was just that much of a shitbag that he... But they, um, when they did the DNA testing, it ruled out 15 other suspects, hmm. and obviously since um, George was... It only left George as the final one, but he was dead. So they had to actually get a warrant of one of his relatives to get the DNA. And that's how it confirmed it was his. Because the DNA mat, like, was similar to his, mm-hmm. you know, to the relatives. The familial DNA Yes. Stuff. So that's how they were able to find that. Because, but yeah. I think it was, like, September, October 2021. They finally confirmed Maureen's killer. Well, that's... Well, good's not the right word, but you know what I mean. I was surprised there wasn't more of a hubbub about this case as, um, like the Michelle Martinko 
there was such a big deal that about that. That was a that. huge deal. And, like, I, I only saw one post of this at one point just because I remember the picture of the guy. Yeah, I mean, and I found, I, I mean... Thank you, iowacoldcases.org. As well. um, you literally website. have so many links um, to go research these, and um, whoever runs this, I don't know if it's Jody Ewing, um, but thank you. Um, but yeah, I, I went to iowacoldcases.org and it popped up as update, case closed. I'm like, hmm. So I started reading into it, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do for my first one. Good job, Ashley. Everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Every round of applause. <laughs> and we didn't even get disrupted by a cat. No, she's sleeping. <laughs> Our studio audience is asleep at the moment. <laughs> I am not as prepared as I wanted to be, so we can't record our second one tonight, but maybe tomorrow when Ashley's off work, otherwise sometime this week, and we'll get it out soon. So um, we will try to stick have a schedule of release episodes Monday at 9 a.m.? Sure. Sure. But yeah, that is Hometown (laughs) Homicide, and this was not my hometown, but mentioned my hometown, so I also live in Cedar Rapids, um, so it's uh, interesting because I had no idea about this, and literally happened a few miles away from me, so. Right. Um... Lots of lots of bizarre things that you don't know that happen in your hometown. So, again, we want to tell stories to you, not about you. So stay safe. And this has been Hometown Homicide. <laughs>